Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Christopher Callahan, the Vice President of Human Resources for Exeter Health Systems in Exeter, New Hampshire. Exeter Health Resources is a healthcare system that includes the Exeter Hospital, a 100-bed community hospital, core physicians, a multi-specialty physician group, and Rockingham VNA. Chris has over 30 years of experience in human resource management in the healthcare industry, having served in a number of hospitals and health systems prior to coming to Exeter Health Resources. Human resources is a critical support function in any organization, and it has evolved dramatically, as Chris explains in the interview, from a tactical, routine, paperwork-driven service to a strategic asset that can have a powerful impact on an organization's success over Chris's career. Chris and I had a lengthy conversation, so I have produced two versions of this podcast, an abridged version and an extended version. You are listening to the extended version. If you would like to listen to the abridged version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I am excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Chris Callahan. Welcome to The Forge, Chris. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. So you went to King's College in wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, and you studied economics and government and politics. Mm -hmm. What drew you to King's College? And why the double major? Actually, my uh, my dad went to uh, to King's College, and it was so. That's the first reason to apply. But the you know the real reason I went there was the size and the reputation. It's a it's a Catholic college. It's run by the Holy Cross Fathers who uh, who run Notre Dame. So we were kind of like you know one A to Notre Dame. <laughs> okay. Can't get into Notre Dame. You can get okay. into King's. You said you liked the size, was it? It was a smaller college. There was probably about 1,000, 1,200 uh, students that lived on campus and probably another 1,000 from, uh, from the Wilkes-Barre area. So with the small size, you really got to, to do a lot and get involved in leadership roles, which, which was important in retrospect looking at the ability to take on a leadership role you know, you didn't have to jump through a lot of flaming hoops. If you wanted to, it was available, you know, to you. And, you know, I was able to uh, to do a number of things there. The double major, when I went to college, I was really thinking about law school. I was thinking about public administration. So that was where the government part came from. Once I got there, I took a couple of economics courses and thought that it was a good foundational thinking for other business aspects, so I was able to pick up that as a double major after I, uh, after I got there. 
I also had a minor in philosophy, so wow. uh, well, you were all I, over the place. I was well grounded. <laughs> That's great. You went to the George Washington University shortly after graduation. Yeah, I went right from college right to graduate school. Okay. I knew that I wanted to get into hospital administration, healthcare administration. I didn't have any clinical background, which was problematic to get into, you know, an operating environment. And I knew what I wanted to, to be in leadership at some level, so I just jumped right in. So you, you came to un your undergrad thinking law school maybe. Mm -hmm. At what point did you make that shift to say, you know, I would rather be in administration and specifically in hospitals? How did that come about? Probably sophomore, junior year. I, I was influenced again by, by my dad, who was on the board of directors of a, a local hospital. He became the chairman, you know, of the board. Oh, wow. And actually his daytime job was the office of the uh, office on aging administrator in the county that we lived. And his office happened to be in another hospital. So I was exposed to, you know, a lot of hospital work. It was late 70s, early 80s. Healthcare was still an expanding field. Medicare and Medicaid really weren't that old at that point. And so there was emphasis on grow, still on growing access to healthcare services. And I got to, uh, to see things through the board chairman's eyes as we were having adult beverages on the porch every once in a while. So, so he got me interested in it, introduced me to a couple of folks that were in the field, was lucky enough to be able to chat with them get some guidance on, you know, on programs. George Washington came up a couple of times. A larger program that was willing to accept people without real-world experience. And they had, a, as part of their program, they had a year-long administrative residency. So they actually put you in a, in a hospital. You were in D.C. for about 18 months, and then a full year doing an administrative residency uh, in a hospital. So where did they send you to do your residency? I went to Mercy Community Hospital in uh, Port Jervis, New York. It was a smaller hospital in a rural part of Orange County, although Port Jervis was kind of a small little city. It was great for me because it was about 20 minutes away from, from where I grew up, so I didn't have to worry about housing and you know, meals and all of that stuff. I just went home, uh, right. which was great. What was that experience like for you? First time really working. I mean, you had some exposure to the hospital through your dad, but now you're in the thick of it. What was that like? Well, it was it was a very interesting place. Catholic hospital. I showed up on the first day of merged operations where the Catholic hospital had purchased the doctor's proprietary hospital, which was the doctor's hospital was about 35 or 40 beds. It was literally three blocks away from the Catholic hospital that was about 150, 160 beds. So showed up on the first day of merged operations and they literally had, they didn't have letterhead. They had to X out, I'm, I'm dating myself now, on a typewriter. They had to X out St. Francis Hospital and type in Mercy Community Hospital. So the first year I was there was very interesting from a culture perspective because you're merging two very, very different cultures. And what I found 
there is in a small hospital in a small town, you, you almost have to have an enemy. You know, so you're always, you know, there's an us and a them. So in that town, it was always Dr. Sunnyside Hospital versus St. Francis and St. Francis versus Dr. Sunnyside. And now all of a sudden you're merged and, you know, we're supposed to play on the same team. Yeah. So it was a great learning lesson for me in merging cultures. You know, and you take a look back, and the merger mania is still going on today. Oh, yeah. So, um, seems to be picking up even at, at it this is. point. Certainly. Yeah, I think it is. You know, the administrative residency that I was you know, able to do was, was great because I just had the ability to wander around the organization mm -hmm. for a year and find out how different departments work. So I did rotations for you know, four or five days in the operating room um, and gowned up. They didn't have me do any cutting, but in a non-teaching hospital, uh, the doctors still love to teach. So sure. I was teaching, you know, material and it was like, hey, come on over here, look at this and, you know, through this scope. And, uh, you know, it was fascinating from, you know, the medical aspect. But then you, you got to see how all the departments, you know, interacted and how dependent, you know, they were, you know, on each other and how siloed they were from each other. So, you know, it was a great experience to, uh, to get in and, and do that. So I was all. Yeah. I was also focused in a couple of project areas, and uh, back in the day, per, the personnel department was okay. uh, was one of them. Okay. So, so know, was that a thing that they said, "Hey, we want you to go work in that area for for a bit they, as part of the residency initially?" Yes, they had a couple of projects that they wanted to be done in in uh, in you know, personnel at that time, and it. You know, it was an unsophisticated operation and, you know, run by good people, but they were not uh, well-trained in either personnel. It was kind of OJT for them, nor in, you know, nor in management and, you know, planning and just kind of big picture thought and, and you know, and, and strategy really at all. I mean, it was all very, very tactical, very, very short term. And this was common. In, this, the, this in that time period, oh, that was not unique to that organization, right? No, personnel was you know a you know a filing system operation. You know there wasn't the sophistication in terms of uh, behavioral interviewing, um, background checks. You know the Office of the Inspector General and all of the federal regulations around hiring just weren't passed yet. It was a much much simpler time. Not always for the good. But in this particular organization, you know, they had also affiliated with the Sisters of Mercy Health Corporation out of Farmington Hills, uh, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. So they were buying some consulting services. In fact, the administrator was a contracted employee from SMHC who had taken over. He was actually the first lay administrator that the organization had. It had been all nuns before that. Okay. In fact, that's a big cultural change too then, I it's, guess. It was a huge cultural change. And it actually taught me a lot about power and authority, which I remember in, at George Washington was a full three-hour course on the difference between power and authority and short-term hospital administration. Okay. And I remember sitting there calculating how much I was spending in tuition to listen to this guy talk for three hours on the difference between power and authority. Yeah. 
And in my first job, I found out and I reflected back on that because I had no clue. Yeah. I thought, uh, you know, if you were the CEO, you were in charge. And it's certainly in healthcare that is, th that is not the case. Yeah. You have to be, you know, very careful of which way the winds are, are blowing or your boat is going to get swamped. What's the 30 second summary of the three hour course on power and authority? <sighs> um, that there is a huge difference and just because you have a title doesn't really mean that you're in charge. Um, you have to understand where the board is. You have to understand where the medical staff is. You have to communicate well with the employees. And you always have to work very, very hard to get everyone moving, you know, in the same direction at about the same time. And if there are cross currents that develop when you're sailing through those waters, you better have a life jacket on because it can, because the seas can get pretty rough. So, um, so you finished your, your residency and you stayed on at, uh, yeah, this is part of the power versus authority thing. So okay. in early December, the administrator and the assistant administrator who was my preceptor, didn't see eye to eye, and the administ assistant administrator was asked to leave. And this was a 160-bed hospital, and there weren't enough hands there to kind of keep the you know the ship going. We were a year into a merger. We were just starting about a 25 million dollar construction project, which back in the day was a huge you know slug of dough. And so the administrator asked me to, to stay on for a couple of months and just, just help him out. Given that I had no job offers at that time and the relative range of options, that seemed like a really good idea for, you know, to me. So I stayed on for three months, helped him out. And at the end of that period of time, he said, you know, I really need help in HR. So could you be the assistant administrator for human resources? And, uh, and I said, yeah, I'm in. So that was kind of a, a life-changing um, or a direction-setting moment. It, it was. I, you know, I really, at no time in my preparation for earning a living did I ever sit back and think, I want to be, be human resources executive one day. Yeah. But I, but I fell into it. You know, I think that's a common story, mm -hmm. right? So you hadn't had had you had any courses in it? Did did George Washington teach an HR course at that point in time? Not not a one. Yeah, um, because it was still that personnel kind of orientation. It was still the personnel. There was a little bit of group dynamics and organizational, you know, development type course that is probably standard for your students today. My yeah. my my high school daughter is doing project work and figuring out who's the lead and who's a follower and, you know, what makes an effective team. You know, that's kind of cutting-edge stuff back in the day. But I learned by making a lot of phone calls to our uh, labor lawyer in New York City. I read a lot of periodicals, a lot of journals. Uh, American College of Healthcare Executives was the professional association that I was joining at that time. And... You know, they had a number of HRE type, you know, deep seminars that were three, four days long. And so I made sure that for the first couple of years of my professional life that I got out and uh, made that investment in myself to, uh, to go to these, you know, professional learnings. 
I also picked up every free journal that there was in the whole world. So I was on every lawyer's free mailing list and was able to pick things up pretty quickly and then figure out how to apply them at, you know, at work and kind of make it work. The other fun thing was that I had no preconceived notions. So, you know, I often talk today about I'm just from HR so I can ask stupid questions. And I asked stupid questions because I really didn't know. And when I got some answers back on, you know, why we did things the way that we'd always done them, I said, well, you know, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense anymore, does it? So and people were going, yeah, well, yeah, I guess the underlying motivation for doing that has actually gone away now. So, you know, why do you still do it? So I... Uh, the first couple of years, I, I also felt it was part of my job uh, to tell the emperor that he was naked. And that is has been over the, the years an evolving role for HR to be the truth teller to, uh, you know, to power. So... Uh, Can you give an example of that kind of... What kind of a, a issue would HR step in to deal with and well, help it, the... It could be really anything from an operational perspective or a strategic perspective. I felt it was, you know, really my role when there was groupthink going on that this was a this is a really good idea and all the heads around the table were nodding for me to ask the stupid question and say, do we really want to do this? And just push a little bit back and hopefully get somebody to think, well maybe there's another way. Or maybe there's another time, and maybe this is not the right sequencing for this. Would you say that's you personally as a, as a leader and your leadership style, or is that something that seems to go with the field, or both? I think, it's, I, I think that I naturally was a nudge and, you know, and did that. Okay. Um, subsequently, at a really expensive uh, University of Michigan graduate school week-long intensive course with some of the some of the gods in the HR field, the Brock Banks and the, or Brockle Banks and the Dave Ulriches of the world, I subsequently learned that that was one of the six or seven emerging, you know, skills in HR that you needed to to have in in their rubric of what a professional HR group you know, looked like. So I was I was ahead of my time, but I just didn't write the book. So okay. Uh, so you stayed, you stayed with Mercy for a while, and then you left in 1987 to be the Director of Human Resources at Methodist Hospital in Philadelphia. How is Methodist different uh, as an organization from Mercy? Very urban, uh, South Philadelphia, rocky territory. Okay. So it was, you know, it was ethnic, it was urban, much larger than, than Mercy had a nursing home attached to it and a visiting nurse group. So I got to uh, to work in a couple of new areas from a healthcare delivery perspective. Certainly the the racial and ethnic makeup in Philadelphia is very different than Port Jervis, New York. So that was a new experience for me. As a leader or just culturally you hadn't been exposed to that much? Um, yeah, culturally I really hadn't been exposed to you know a lot of different ethnicities 
So I grew up in, in northern, north, uh, western New Jersey, which was, you know, uh, very white. There were more cows than people when my, my parents moved to, uh, Sussex County, uh, New Jersey. And then I went to a very similar experience at, uh, at King's in Wilkesbury. So when I went to, to Washington for the first time, I, I you know, really kind of, my eyes were open, and I realized the rest of the world wasn't white, Irish, and Catholic. Um, <laughs> right. And so it was, it was, you know, very interesting, and I think it was good for me to, to get into a multi-ethnic, multi-racial environment. It wasn't challenging at all. It was, it was just, it was actually a little, you know, a little bit more fun. But, you know, we had challenges in Philadelphia about, you know, recruitment. There were 65 hospitals in the city of Philadelphia when uh, I was working there. I have probably 25 or 30 now. So it was tremendously overbedded. Lots of neighborhood hospitals, lots of religiously sponsored hospitals. And, uh, you know, we went through a couple of challenges with, uh, with recruitment. We also had some, some turnover in, uh, in leadership uh, right after I got there that was presented some interesting political challenges. And uh, it was a challenged hospital fiscally. Reimbursement changed tremendously um, yeah, that's... In, during that period of time. Right. So it was the beginning of the HMO era where you stopped doing lots of things to, uh, you know, to patients, and all of a sudden your volume dried up. So, yeah. And also the government reimbursement for shifted from cost plus to DRG at that point. Uh, yeah, was that, that was then? about 83, 84. Oh, okay, so. But it really started to ripple through right. you know, at that time, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. So we're in the late 80s here. Yeah. But there were, you know, a couple of major payers in, in Philadelphia and... Preferred provider organizations and HMOs, you know, really started to take off, mm-hmm. you know, at that time. So your utilization, you know, dropped off the table. And I needed to become, you know, relatively quickly um, a downsizing specialist. Mm. So, Did the hospital go through a downsizing? Uh, we went through uh, probably three rounds of downsizing, you know, when I was there. So... I wanted to ask you about that. So, how, what's that process like from the HR perspective? Because it's just part—it's part of normal business. Well, not normal. Normal is a little yeah, strong, it's, but it's, it's, it's not, a thing that you will deal, deal with if you're an HR professional at some uh, point. Right? In these days and times, you will. At that point in time, you know, again, healthcare had been in a growth and expansion mode. Okay. Um, so this was really the first pullback and the uh, and the first realization uh, as a nation that, oh my God, we're spending 10% of our gross domestic product on, on health care. Right. That's going to squeeze everything out and there'll be no more money left for infrastructure and, and, and anything else. Of course, we now spend 18% right. of the gross domestic product <laughs> If we on could only get back to 10%. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, look, look pretty good. Yeah. So this downsizing was new. From the HR perspective and you know, from the culture perspective, hospitals, especially religious hospitals, weren't run very efficiently. There was a lot of mission in these hospitals. So you found yourself employing people in 
entry-level service positions and housekeeping and food services, and you found yourself really being the employer of last resort. So it was great from a mission perspective. It was really not very good from an efficiency perspective. And it made it all the more difficult when you had to you know, let people go because you just didn't have the money anymore. You and said. if you were the employer of last resort, where were they going? Where were they, where were they going to go? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was challenging to be in on the business determination that, geez, turnover doesn't look like we're going to get where we need to go with people leaving of their own accord or retiring. And we got to do something within a pretty short time frame. Hospitals at that point didn't have a ton of money sitting on a balance sheet someplace that they could take their time. They were worried about, you know, what was the operating margin looking like uh, this year. So you had to move much more quickly. And, you know, when you came up with the determinations of, you know, what the number was going to be and then figured out where, you know, which departments were, were going to get cut, you really weren't dealing with people who, you know, had been there just a short period of time. You're talking about people who have been there for a long time. And I remember, you know, having to eliminate a class of employees that were nursing assistants when you know, we were, you know, doing some work in Methodist. And the vast majority of these almost all women, had been at the hospital per, for probably an average of 22 to 23 years. They were all high school prepared or GED. They didn't really have certifications or licensure. They were paid very well for, for their level of education. They had a full benefit package. They had pensions. And um, most of them were African-American. And so there were a number of sleepless nights before I went in and, and I figured that I had to do the chat with each one of them along with their manager, you know, to let them know that, you know, we, we had let them go today. It was, uh, it was gut-wrenching. I mean, it was horrible because I knew that I was sending these folks off and that their employment prospects were not good. And if they got a job, it would be nowhere near the uh, the rate of pay that they were going to get before, or that they were getting with us uh, at that time. So, was that a? I mean, is that from a macro perspective? Is that just a change in the economy that was happening in that time, or was it specific to hospitals? It was it was really specific to the hospitals because of, because of the HMO movement. So the the reduction in length of stay, getting mm -hmm. patients out of the hospital, you know, sooner. And, you know, I mean, it was cost-driven. I mean, at that point, healthcare insurance premiums were going up, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent, you know, every year. And people thought it was bad then, but 10 percent on a very low number isn't really a big number. 10 percent on a premium now is a very big number. So, you know, we're, we're back systemically to Four or five percent, you know, inflation in healthcare premiums, you know, overall. But it's on a very big number, so it takes a, a big bite out of your, uh, your your benefits budget. Back then, it was just the it was moving patients out of the hospital much yeah. much quicker. Okay. So the industry was changing, and, and, that, and that in was huge just, ways. Yeah. yeah. 
And then these folks who had been employed, like you said, as kind of a employer of last resort now, were going to be sent out to the economy mm -hmm. to opportunities that just weren't the same. Uh, they, they weren't. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you look at how does that impact you as a person, mm. and then what is your role in guiding the business to make sure that you don't overbuild, you don't overhire, because, you know, in the back of your mind, you know that you're going to be the one that's going to have to sit with these folks. And it is a very different perspective when you're up close and personal to, to these folks. And, uh, you know, and cry along with them because it, it, this is the end of, you know, something really good in their life. And you just don't want to go back there. You look at every trick in the book that you can come up with to prevent that from happening. Um, so early retirement programs, I got to be an early retirement program design and execution specialist. Buyouts that were outside of you know, pension plans, incentives for, uh, for people to leave so I didn't have to replace them. Got pretty creative in finding ways not to have bad conversations with people. Yeah. And so is that something that's stuck with you since then? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, in, in the last couple of years, I, we, you know, I've actually had to go back to the bag of tricks as we have gotten out of business lines at, you know, at Exeter Health Resources. I've actually turned the recruitment department into an outplacement department probably for, you know, period of a year as we were looking to close a, a long-term care facility. It was not one of those things that we could go, hey, on Monday we're closing. You know, we had to give six, eight months notice to the state. We had to give notice to patients and their families. We were responsible for transferring these patients to an appropriate level of care. And this, you know, the tricky part was I had to maintain staff in place to do that with them knowing that, you know, at a, a really at a point in time, not that far out into the future, they weren't going to have a job anymore. So, you know, you had to, you know, employ a, a new set of tricks, not only to get them to, to leave, but get them to leave at the right time and not too early. Right. So, right, because you had to maintain staffing as long as you had patients. And, absolutely. Right. right. So, so it's kind of that transition to how do we get them to other places in our organization. You know, we have 2,400 employees, and at a couple of points during the last you know, five years, we've been down to 2,100. So we've had to close a couple of businesses um, and get out of those, those lines of work. But, you know, from the HR perspective, how you have people leave your organization is almost as important as how you bring them in. Most of our employees live within 30 minutes of, uh, of Exeter. So they're not only our employees, to, to a large extent, they're our, uh, they're our customers as well. So we get to care for them, we get to care for their, for their, uh, for their families, uh, their extended families. So, you know, we're, we're not just treating a human resource, we're treating one of our neighbors. And it's a very, very different view of the world that you need to take as opposed to, you know, any large multinational, you know, company who is going to close up a factory and move off to South Carolina or Mexico or, or China. 
Right. You don't have to deal with those people anymore. You're you're up. You're done and over with. Uh, we you know we can't move the hospital. We're there because that's where the people are. So yeah. it gives it a very very different view. You have to be much more humanistic than you know, kind of business school cut and dry. Hmm. So in the years you were at Methodist, how was the HR field evolving? Seems like there was a lot of change there as well, right? You, you were, when you came in at Mercy, it was kind of more of a personnel department. How was that? So in, from the time you first came into the field through here, is, is, was there a lot of change going on in terms of how HR was viewed? It was starting to become a bit more sophisticated. It was becoming the norm that the HR leader sat at the executive table and uh, was part of the senior executive team. I had that at, at Mercy. When I first went to Methodist, I reported to a vice president who was on the senior executive team. In part of the, the turnover and the, uh, and the changing of the guard at Methodist within my first six to eight months there, um, I ultimately wound up reporting to the chief executive officer, so I became uh, even with the director title, I became part of the senior management group, which was, you know, something that I was very interested uh, in helping to run the business, not just run the HR department. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think my first three jobs, I changed uh, the title of the department from personnel to human resources. Okay. So that was kind of interesting. The, the sign makers really, you know, enjoyed it when I went someplace because <laughs> they got some business. So you moved in 93, you moved to Muhlenberg? Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg Hospital Center in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So, and this was now to take the director of human resources. Yeah. Right. So jumping out of um, South Philadelphia, they yeah. were having continuing financial pressures and it takes a toll on you f to work in an environment where you really don't have any resources. And I'd done that for you know six, six and a half years, and it was just time for a change. Muhlenberg was a bit different in Bethlehem, kind of a newer, smaller hospital. Had a very active psychiatry program, which was uh, interesting. That was new to work in behavioral health. It had also had a long-term rehab hospital attached uh, to it in, in that corporation. So again, I was exposed to different care settings, and, and that was you know kind of fun and exciting. How does that affect the work that you do to have a different care setting, you know, to have a rehab hospital versus a acute care facility? In many environments, these care settings are in different buildings. They come into the organization at different times, and they have different cultures. So one of the fun things and one of the advantages that I had in human resources is the, the master's in health services administration, so really the master's in operations you know, of a hospital. So I was able to come at a department's problem or an organization's problem, kind of actually knowing how it runs, which was a huge advantage for me when I would interview because I was both the HR guy, but I also knew how you know, how the place ran and what the relationships were, what the handoffs were. When I got to a place that had some new care settings, it, it was just a learning opportunity for me to see how that place actually ran, what the business was like, what the 
what the handoffs were like, what the operations of that was like. So that, that was kind of fun for me, and then I was able to apply different HR tools and different approaches, uh, you know, based on the uh, on the different settings of care. So it's like being a you know a general car mechanic and working on a Volkswagen and then a Mercedes and you know then a Chevy all in the same day. Uh, it, it was it was intellectually I think you know rewarding to you know to play in those different care settings. So at that point you had about ten years of experience in the field. How did how did you feel about your expertise at that point and and what were you really, you know, what was new, what was learning, what were you learning uh, as you went into that that new assignment? Well, again, so, you know, some of the new care settings. Okay. Even though, you know, Bethlehem was 60 miles, you know, from Philadelphia, it really felt like a very different world. The payers and the incentives for those payers were very, very different. The level of sophistication of the HR department was was not not contemporary. So there were things that they were doing there that were, you know, kind of easy fixes. And you know, you got a couple of quick wins, which gave you a little bit of wind in your sails. It, it pumped up your credibility a little bit. So it was good to go in and, and find some of those things. One of the advantages of working in organizations that are struggling financially is that you're used to operating looking for uh, for nickels and dimes. And then when you go to a place that has been more well-off, they, they don't have to look that hard. You can generally find a lot of change in the, you know, in the seat cushions um, really quick yeah. because a lot of stuff falls out of people's pockets. And so as those organizations were pressured financially in the changing healthcare world, you were able to, to really help out in some, some major ways by finding opportunities to, you know, save money, you know, become more efficient, think differently about the way that you train people and interact with, uh, with customers. So you were at Muhlenberg through 1997, and then you went to Saratoga Hospital and Nursing Home uh, in New York as the vice president now for yes. um, human resources. What did it mean that you took on that title? Well, the one thing that I was hoping for at Muhlenberg that didn't really happen is getting back to that senior management table. Hmm. Um, I thought that that was the trajectory. didn't work out the way that, that I had hoped. And so I was interested when I was looking to, you know, to pivot and find a couple of new opportunities it was important for me to to get a job back at the senior management um, you know level with 10 years of experience uh, and some nice accomplishments on your resume that I was really helped with uh, greatly by a friend of mine who was an outplacement uh, counselor my my resume you know looked looked pretty good and he taught me how to sell myself better than I was doing it before and so, uh, you know, you, you look for those cultural fits that are going to work well for you. Saratoga was, you know, was one of them. So back on the senior management team, an organization that was coming out of fiscal challenges, so I could see a little bit of light on the horizon, you know, for them and the way that their operating uh, P&L and, uh, and balance sheet were looking. So there was a lot of there was a lot of upside in uh, in going to Saratoga. I, again, the it may have been human resources at that time, but it was it, it was still pretty personnel-y. Okay. 
So your early career was a lot of kind of making that movement from the old personnel shop to an HR service, yes. an HR department. Yeah. And I, it, they had had a, a relatively new CEO come in, and I think that he was recognizing that as well. So he was looking for a, for a vice president. And he took me under his wing a little bit and uh, helped me develop, pushed me in, in terms of my thinking, which was aggravating at the time. You know, why didn't he just accept what I said and let it be that way? So he asked me all of these questions. I came to, uh, to appreciate it later on and recognized that that was his job, you know, was to, to push and push and push so that performance and improvement would go up both personally with me as well as with the organization. So that was, uh, that was an interesting uh, life lesson to learn from, uh, from him. So you made the jump in 2004 to vice president for HR for the patient care division of Northeast Health. What was Northeast Health? Northeast Health was a, um, an interesting company, not-for-profit, had two hospitals, one in uh, Albany, New York, uh, a small, uh, the smallest of the three hospitals in Albany, and then Samaritan Hospital in Troy, New York. They also had a number of nursing homes, a home care agency, and they started a assisted living facility, adult, over 55 community uh, while I was there. So it was uh, it was interesting because at the time, most hospitals you know were buying nursing homes, but it was a hospital centric world. This was actually a bunch of nursing homes who kind of bought the hospitals. So it was really odd. They got very excited there about telehome medicine in you know visiting nurse in the visiting nurse menu. Wow. And it was like. Yeah, but we got this, you know, really cool CT or, you know, MRI that we just bought. And they were like, yeah, that's good. But look at this telehome medicine. That's really neat. So it was very, uh, it was very interesting experience. Uh, they brought me in as a vice president for human resources just for the two hospitals. And the two hospitals were also just beginning to put their toe in the water of physician employment. That was a very new concept at that time. So it was uh, it was an interesting position to be kind of the HR ambassador for the hospitals with the system and I think the hospitals felt that it was nursing home centric so I think some of my job was to bring more resources focus and attention of the HR system team back onto the hospitals. It was it was an interesting mission. Yeah. Um, you know, I sometimes you know tended to do more and better work uh, in helping the system level team than really kind of bringing it back into uh, into the hospitals themselves. So probably not a great fit. And you know, was there for a couple of years and recognized that wasn't that good a fit. They really did not have the job I think well defined. And, you know, it's tough to, you know, deliver when you really don't know what the goal is. Yeah. So. Okay. So you did move on to um, St. Joseph Healthcare Services in Rhode Island. Yes. So that bring you, brings you to New England for the first time. It does. Providence was a, was a nice place. 
I it was it was time to to move on from uh, from Northeast Health. I had a former colleague from Saratoga who had become the vice president for nursing there, and she was a strong you know proponent and advocate of of me going to uh, going to Providence and St. Joe's. Very another very different organization, two hospital system. The chairman of the board was the bishop of providence so in a you know kind of an old school board from the catholic intelligentsia in uh, in the diocese of providence and some very long you know term supporters of that organization a health system that was in was in change used to have a 350 bed hospital in uh, south providence the neighborhood changed, the pair mix changed, and by the time I got there, they weren't uh, running any uh, acute care patient operations out of that building. It was uh, behavioral health, and it was long-term rehab, and they had a kind of an urgent care facility that they ran out of what used to be the emergency room. But here was this 350-bed, 11-story building in South uh, South Providence that we yeah. were maybe utilizing 25% of the space. Oh wow! And then that's the, not a good business plan. It's right? not really good, especially when you know the building was built in probably late 40s, 50s, and okay. 60s, and there was asbestos all through it. Okay. So the cost to take it down was worth it cost more than the value of the land you know that it was on so again not a good not a good uh, business model yeah had two unions when i got there one nursing union at each hospital uh, separate locals so it wasn't the same people that i was dealing with at both hospitals this is the first time that i had union you know experience okay um, so that was an eye opener to uh, to me. The uh, really HR plays a big role with unions, right? Um, Typically, yeah, they're they're really kind of centralized in the negotiation process of of contracts, but also much more in the day to day interchange between union members and their department directors around discipline, changes in schedules, changes in policies. We went through uh, some layoffs at uh, at St. Joe's as well, and they dictate the contract dictates the rules on who goes first, and it's last in, first out. Doesn't matter what the performance level is. Doesn't matter really what the skill set is. Well, that's a problem if you're trying to reshape the uh, you know, I mean, the organization. It's, it's musical chairs. So if you want to do a reduction in one area, well, you know, you can do that, but you got to figure out who has the lowest seniority in the entire bargaining unit, and then they get to go first, and then you got to move all of the other people around into different chairs. It really hampers your ability at a time of great change to make change rapidly in order to achieve, uh, you know, business goals. So quite, quite challenging, you know, business environment there. So you didn't stay there all that long. No, um, about two years, I think. It was. Oh, it was. It wasn't a year. Oh, it wasn't even a year. It was eleven months. Oh my. Okay. So, uh, and and at that point, you actually come to Exeter Health Resources yeah. in two thousand seven. So, what drove that relatively rapid? Well, i i had a I had a phone call from uh, from the CEO Tuesday afternoon. I had been there for about five months. 
and when you interviewed at places at that time and subsequently, there were two questions that you wanted to make sure that you asked, which was, are you planning any mergers? And I was assured, now nah, we're, you know, we've been talking to the hospital down the street for 10 years, but that's not, you know, really going to go anywhere and nothing's going re really good is going on now. Okay, check that box. And then because you, it's like you don't go to a, an organization, you, you, you don't go to people, not the bricks and mortar. You ask the question, well, John, you've been here for 20 years. What are your plans? How long are you hanging around for? Because I got a long time to work still, so I want to make sure that you're going to be in place. I've been here for 20 years. I'll probably retire from here. So on a Tuesday afternoon, about 2 o'clock, I get a phone call from the CEO and says, can I come down to your office? That is not a good phone call to get. <laughs> so he comes down. He says, geez, I just want to let you know I'm taking another job. Okay, congratulations, John. And uh, we're looking to merge with Roger Williams you know, Hospital down the street. Good. Thanks very much. You know, I've been here for five months, and I'm commuting from... Providence to Saratoga Springs. I had moved my family. Yet. Oh, okay. So the next call is to my wife, and I say, "Stop packing, because we ain't moving. Yeah. The, the, the uncertainty level is just too high." Yeah. So that's when I started to look, and was really fortunate to find the opportunity at Exeter. So how did that come about? You know, it was uh, it was a transition time for HR at uh, at Exeter. Uh, you know, they had uh, an opening after a long-tenured HR exec had had left. When you look for, you know, jobs, there are certain key individuals that you build relationships with, and you pick up the phone and work the phone, and you send out your resume, and you keep an eye on, you know, the job postings. With Kiefer Associates as a, uh, a headhunting firm that I've done business with, on both the recruiting side, and I've used you know them, worked with them to help me find other opportunities. And uh, I got in touch with them, and they said, "Geez, you know, I think this would be a good match. Why don't you go up and you know talk to the folks up there?" So it uh, it was a good match. I get along uh, incredibly well with my CEO, who I know you know and have had yeah, on we've had him on prior on, uh, yeah. podcast. Kevin Callahan is uh, is his name. And we have, we're, we're not related. No relation, right? No relation. Yeah. <laughs> Although you can't. I did have to, I, I did have that question when I, when I first heard your last name. I'm like, is this like his, his know, brother or, or something? You know, the, the, yeah. um, but uh, actually, my wife said, what's your boss's name? You know, when I was interviewing, I said, Kevin Kelly. She said, you don't have a shot at that job. It would be way too confusing. Yeah. So, and yet uh, here you are. Nine years later. Nine years later. Nine years later. Let's talk a little bit about Exeter Health Resources as an organization before we talk specifically about your your okay. department uh, and your responsibility. So Exeter, kind of in brief, what 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 are the? Com I've had Kevin Callahan on. He's already said all this yep. stuff, but in case somebody hasn't listened to his interview, give us a brief rundown of kind of what what is Exeter Health Resources? Hundred bed hospital, about one hundred and seventeen years in business, a physician employment company that started. 20 years ago, has now grown to 600 employees. The hospital has about uh, 1,500 employees. We have a visiting nurse group that is up to about 150 employees. 
Over the last five years, we have gotten out of two lines of business. One was a for-profit fitness facility called Synergy. Had about 100 employees, so we kind of went through a, uh, you know, closing that business and the people aspects of that. We also closed a provider of service called Exeter Healthcare, which used to be a long-term rehabilit or a short-term rehabilitation hospital and a ventilator-dependent care unit. The ventilator-dependent unit had about 10 patients in it, and they were long-term ventilator patients. I think the longest patient that we had as a resident uh, there, and they referred to them as residents, was 10 years. Wow. And That's a long the, time to be on a ventilator. It's a very long time to be on a ventilator. Um, and so the people that did that work, again, were, were, you know, were just exceptional, exceptional people. And we had a short-term rehabilitation unit, which was 14 or 15 beds. And the, uh, both of those businesses be really became unprofitable, you know, to the point that we couldn't, the rest of the organiz organization couldn't subsidize them anymore. So do you, does your office provide the HR support to the entire organization? Or uh, are there separate HR entities for the other organizations? No, we, we provide centralized HR. Okay. Um, for the entire organization, I do have some HR business partners that will cross companies and they'll principally support the visiting nurse group. There are 150 employees. They need to understand that business. I have a couple of HR partners who do cross companies. So okay. some of the VNA, they have a couple of departments at the hospital. Some people support primary care at core physicians and also some other support uh, departments. I have one partner that supports kind of the inpatient hospital procedural units, so the, emerge, the operating rooms, endoscopy, and she also supports the outpatient practices at core that are doing that type of medicine. So I have to do a little bit of What's the total manage. population supported them about? We have uh, 2,400 employees over all of those companies. And is that the primary driver of your kind of workload? Is a is a is a headcount? Yeah, primarily it's headcount. We also deal with you know with contractors and and tracking you know contractors that come into our organization as well. I also have responsibility for the volunteer program at the hospital. We have about 120 volunteers that come in and, and, and help us in various ways. How does the HR department now, how is the HR department organized? What are the, who, who reports to you? Okay. I have a person that does compensation and, uh, and benefits, Sue Callahan. No relationship to me or to Kevin. <laughs> so too many, way too many Callahans there. I have a gentleman who runs both recruitment as well as pay payroll and HRIS. His name is Charlie Thomas. Not Callahan. Not Callahan. I have a person that supports our internal communication and our intranet, Lisa Caracosta. So that's an interesting segment of you know a function that most people associate with marketing and communications. Yeah. We have one person that is dedicated to taking those messages that we need to get out and focusing them on the employees. So through the intranet, through a, you know, twice, uh, a biweekly internal newsletter, how do we 
craft, you know, different messages that go out to uh, our various constituencies at, at, at any one time. So that is, that's a little bit uh, unique to, uh, to our setup. I have an organizational development person, Sue DeMarco, who has also gone out and developed an expertise in coaching. So she's certified as a coach, and it's actually proved very, very beneficial. Uh, for what kind of coaching? What do you mean by coaching? So I'm assuming she doesn't have like a whistle and um, gym shorts. No, not a whip a gun and a, a whip gun and a chair sometimes. <laughs> so she will come in to do executive coaching with uh, with leadership. Okay. So it is. She'll come in. She'll chat with you. She'll do a 360, you know, kind of uh, performance evaluation on you. You invite, you know, other people to give comments on your leadership style. It's anonymous. Um, she shares those results with you and then works with you to develop a plan to fine-tune management skills, to change communication skills um, in order to improve executive performance um, it's mostly we do it at a department uh, director level. So it is very intense. It really is, you know, management coaching. How do you be a better leader? And it's proven to be, you know, quite effective. Uh, coaching is, is kind of a new thing that's going on. And she had the foresight to go out a couple of years ago and say, I really would like to do this. I think that it could be of value to us. And she's run a number of coaching management development programs that were very specific and are much more applicable um, now as physicians are moving into leadership roles within healthcare organizations. There's a, there's a need for physician executive skill development. They're really, really good at the medicine you know, part but they don't teach you how to lead teams in, uh, in medical school. So right. she works, she's doing a lot of work with physicians right now. Interesting. Other sections? So you, you said comp and benefits, recruiting, internal communications, organizational development. I have a team of HR business partners okay. that will go out and support department directors and, and their vice presidents in their line of business with HR stuff. Everything from onboarding to kind of doing some paperwork to make sure that the costs get in the right place to disciplinary and uh, coaching matters that they have with, with their staff. One of the initiatives that Sue is actually working on, Sue DeMarco, is to how to train up our HR partners in coaching techniques. So I can take one person now and diffuse that knowledge through four or five other folks that do this in their daily practice anyway. Yeah. But it may give them some new skills, some new thought processes, some new approaches. So these folks are generalists. They are generalists. They're, but they're they're really they're not doing recruiting. You know, so the typical HR generalist is. Recruiting benefits. They do everything. They do everything. Okay. These folks we have, you know, tightened up their scope so that they're really employee relations and you know some tactical management development. 
and you know a little bit of succession planning, a little bit of moving, helping managers move people into the right place. Sometimes the right place is not in our organization anymore. But holding and helping those managers to achieve a level of accountability that you know they may not otherwise achieve. So they help them do maybe evaluations and you know, give them receive thoughts that? on evaluations. Okay. Um, we try to line up our systems so that if you have some disciplinary action in an employee during the course of a year, yeah. that that is actually reflected on their performance evaluation. Okay. And sometimes managers, you know, don't do that. Well, that was in the early part of the year. They're much better today. Yeah. We're evaluating people for the body of work during this calendar period. So if they did it this year, then it needs to be reflected. And, you know, to get them to document that because the complexity of the legal process when you're looking to take disciplinary action or end someone's employment really relies on a lot of documentation, contemporaneous notes, you know, to prove that uh, you, you, you made a good faith effort to get them to improve their performance. Besides the fact that it's the right thing to do to communicate yeah. um, clearly and effectively to employees just where they stand. Yeah. So, Can you talk a little bit about an, what, what makes an effective evaluation system? You, you must have seen a number of them over the course of your career. Yeah, I, I think that an evaluation system is effective if it supports the mission, vision, and values of the organization. So one of the things that we've done at Exeter a number of years back is move away from a performance evaluation system that was solely based on the duties and responsibilities in your job description. Because healthcare has changed and is now a team sport, it's not an individual sport. So the way that you interact you know, with patients, the way that you interact with your coworkers, the way you're supportive of our values as an organization. So compassion, uh, flexibility and initiative, creativity and optimism, efficiency in your work, you know, are some of the values that, that we have. So you can be really, really good at the task, but really not so good at create, being creative and optimistic and flexible. And those are the, uh, the aspects of employees that in these days and times, with the amount of change that's going on in healthcare, you really need people that live up to those values, almost more so than being very technically competent, but you know, but poison to the team. I, I you know, I'm a Yankee fan, so I can use the "How long are you going to let Manny be Manny?" Rodriguez from the Red Sox. He could hit home runs, but he was just he was poison in the clubhouse. And the, the Red Sox eventually sent him off to, I think they sent him to, to Los Angeles, where he, he wound up crashing and burning relatively quickly. So this is how do teams work better. And that's, that's some of the things that, you know, that we're finding. And we, I think that we have improved organizational performance because we have aligned what success looks like much more with our mission, vision, and values than you know, we did just kind of looking at tasks on a job description. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what does your compensation and benefits division do? Comp um, looks at a number of different 
um, you know, salary surveys. Um, we're continuously looking at, you know, what the market is doing. So every job in the organization gets an evaluation of where their market position is every year. It is, it's a lot of work. And our comp philosophy is to pay at, at market averages. So that means that some people are going to pay a bit higher than we will, and some people will pay a bit lower than we will. But we want to be competitive, you know, in the labor market, really both with compensation and then, you know, in their role and in benefits to also take a look at what the benefit packages are available in the market and develop a total compensation program, both comp and benefits, that is attractive, that seeks to reward, you know, good performance. And hopefully that in combination with a uh, culture and a good working environment that department directors are, are providing. Our employees don't think about going someplace else other than you know, retiring one day. I think that we're, we're more successful than the rest of the market at doing that. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Because I think the, the balance of all three of those things, the comp, benefits, and working environment, has created a good place for people to work. I know that uh, I am under the statewide average for employee turnover by three percentage points. So it's a pretty statistically, I don't know if it's statistically significant, three percentage points on you know 2,400 employees is a lot more people we'd have to be recruiting for if they left. So if you can keep people, it, it just improves you know, the working environment. You're not continually training and retraining people. The cohesiveness of the work team is, is much better. So comp and benefits really is, you know, their goal is to make sure that we're market competitive, but also recognize that we have fiduciary responsibility to the organization you know, to make sure that we're not spending scarce resources in, in areas that, that we don't need to. Because there's always more resources that, you know, needed than we have money to, to spend on them. So that's their balancing work is to, is to get that right. So it's, I, I want them to cover the, you know, bottom two or three rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pretty well. Yeah, and then turn the love needs and self-actualization needs over to uh, to the managers that uh, you know that they're working with. So. <laughs> I like how you said that. Uh, so you mentioned recruiting and having to get people. What is the recruiting? What is it like to try to find people to fill your jobs? And and you have a pretty wide range of of jobs. We that do you have to fill. I mean, it's everything from food service and, and housekeeping jobs to orthopedic surgeons, radiation therapists, nurses. You know, we have a lot of different job descriptions that are out there that we're trying to cover. It is, it is challenging. The demographics of the employment market in the seacoast are changing. The first thing is that unemployment is probably at, at or near historical lows. New Hampshire's unemployment rate is uh, is three percent right now. The national unemployment rate is five percent. And I've heard, I haven't nailed it down, but I've heard people say that the unemployment rate on the seacoast is about one point six percent. So that candidate pool is not very deep. You know, want to be diving into that. 
And the other part of the demographic is that southern New Hampshire especially is getting older. So the in-migration from northern Massachusetts has pretty much stopped. Uh, that was the New Hampshire advantage for the last 20 years. And the people that are moving in are moving into 55 and older communities. So they are not, they are not candidates for the positions that I have open, or they're not candidates for you know, long-term employment with us if they're interested in working. So it has put a lot of pressure on recruitment and kind of up the line to me to figure out what the training streams are of younger people coming out of school or to sponsor training programs from which we can get employees either right out of training or actually we're doing a model now with Great Bay Community College where we're hiring people and paying them to go to a 12-week medical assistant training course that in cooperation with Great Bay Community College we designed. It was an associate's degree full two-year program. We got it, uh, them to uh, do it in 12 weeks, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, eight weeks in a classroom, four weeks in a physician's office doing clinical rotations, and we pay them to go to school. Mm -hmm. A little bit expensive to do it that way, but there was no other market out there that, uh, that I could recruit from, and Core Physicians is expanding you know, tremendously, and the model of care in their physician's office is changing. So we need well-qualified, well-trained medical assistants. We've been running the program with Great Bay for about two years, and uh, we have now 35 graduates of that program, and I think 33 of them are still with us. So in a time when medical assistant turnover in the state is running at 20%. So, so that's, that's pretty good keep. Yeah, for, that's a good keep. Yeah. So we're going to have to get into doing things differently than we have in the past beyond just putting an ad in the Sunday paper and seeing what paper applications come in the mail by Tuesday. You know, we're looking to use social media. We're looking to use LinkedIn. We're on all of the job boards. So we've, you know, we've actually, I don't, you can't get a paper application at Exeter anymore. It's all right. online. Right. So. Well, it's neat. I wanted to ask you a couple questions about kind of your talent management and kind of, I guess it would fit into the organ, organizational development mm -hmm. side of things. So how does Exeter develop leaders People who are going to step into you know, supervisor management mm -hmm. and upper management roles. We have a new manager program, and we just kicked it off yesterday. And so we invite new managers who we've recruited to the organization to come into a nine-session program where we teach them mission, vision, values. We teach them what is important to us from a leadership perspective, what we expect of them. Uh, we teach them about human resources, kind of rules and regs and, and uh, philosophy. Uh, we teach them customer service training skills that we're going to be teaching and have taught their staff so that they're all on the same page with that. We teach them about the development of 
lean thinking in the Toyota production system, which we're heavily invested in. So how do we get them to engage their employees in helping the employees improve their uh, their work processes? How do we make sure that they're creating an environment of psychological safety so people can raise their hand and say to a nurse or a manager or a physician, hold on just a second. I don't think this is the right thing to do. Let's take a time out and let's think about what we're doing before you know we make a mistake. Yeah. You know, we're a hierarchical organization, much like the military. And we have taken some concepts from military aviation and from the aviation industry and developed and actually uh, used a program from uh, the federal government. It's called Team Steps um, that teaches people how to communicate the way that um, pilots do in a, uh, in a cockpit so that there is um, clear communication so that no one is afraid to provide mutual support and to keep other people out of trouble. So we teach that. That is going to be probably the next uh, training initiative that we have is a development of psychological safety with all of our team members because we know retaliation is, you know, is a big deal in, in the workplace now. So people don't want to raise questions or problems because they're afraid of what the retaliation is going to be. And it's contemporaneous. Last night, you know, two young women came forward and said Donald Trump did things to them. And why didn't, you know, why didn't they report that? Because they were afraid of what the retaliation was going to be. So it's, it, it really is probably more rampant in society than, you know, than we want to know. I think some of the walls on that have come down, but it's still something to be concerned about. So that and a number of other things we provide to new managers coming in. And then we also invite existing staff who may have expressed an interest to, to their leaders, um, you know, if they want to get in on this. So it's, you know, it's a, a big investment of their time to get this training and understanding. It's great for us. Because if they're staff now, they get to go back to the unit and they go, now I understand what they're thinking about. What is the context that we're doing this in? How can we get them to accept roles as change managers within their units before they're ready to step up? So um, that has been, you know, that, that's been a good program. We've been running that for probably six years. Um, generally twice a year, sometimes three times a year. Do you have a systematic way of identifying future leaders and identifying talent that could potentially step up? It's, it's, it's a little more informal than maybe I'd like it to be. Yeah. Um, we actually had a process a couple of years ago where we asked department directors to talk to the top performers in their areas. So going back to our performance evaluation process, talk to the top 40%, everybody who is rated as an exceeds ex expectations, and just ask them, so what, what are you looking for? What, what can I do to make you more engaged here? 
you know, where do you want to be? And, you know, we found that probably about 50% of the people said, you know, what you can do for me is leave me alone. <laughs> I want to do my job. Right. And I want to go home and I want to play with the kids and the dog. And, right. And we said, great, we're all good with that. You know, we had another group that wanted to advance in management. And one of the problems, you know, that we had is we don't have a lot of leadership positions come open. And so when you have 20% of your top performers wanting to be the boss one day, and I'm the boss, and I'm saying, i got to tell you, I ain't going anywhere for another 10 years. And they go, well, you know, well, so what else can you do for me? It creates some, some challenging conversations with the department directors. Is what am I supposed to say to them now? It's like, well, you know, I mean, you can train them up. They could go to another organization. You know, but this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So what would be wrong if, you know, one of your really good people goes away to another organization for a couple of years and then comes back when there's, when there's an opening? Now they're not stepping up as a staff member into a leadership role. Now they're transferring uh, where they've had an opportunity to practice their leadership skills. Granted, it wasn't with us, but now they can come back as a, uh, as a more developed leader. Do you see that happen? Do you have a lot of boomerangs, if, as I think they're referred to? Uh, we do. We have, we have some people who you know, have come back, who have stepped up. We've had a couple of people come up from internally in our ranks. In fact, our, our current vice president for acute care services, we actually um, figured out that she was really ready to make a move up to a vice president. She was a department director before, and our vice president of acute care services at that time had the top performer chat with her and said, well, so where do you want to go? And she said, well, I, I want to sit in your chair. And I've actually interviewed a couple of places. Uh, I haven't get the job, but you know that's where I want to go, and I want to go pretty soon. She says, well, thanks for letting me know, because I'm looking to leave in about four or five months. So we, you know, internally, we developed you know, a high-level executive who had great credibility because she had been at the front lines of leadership for 10 years. So all of a sudden the troops know who the vice president for acute care services is because they worked with her for 10 years. It, you know, it was, a, it was a nice success story and she's done very, very well. What do you find most challenging as the vice president of human resources for Exeter Health Resources? What's the um, most challenging part of your job? It's something that we've we've dealt with a lot in in the last five years, and that's the pace of change. So one of the things that I asked these new leaders yesterday, many of whom have been with us for a while, when I ran a session yesterday, is I said, you know, change is, is tough. People don't like change. Said, How many people have parked in the same parking spot within a spot or two? How many people do that every day when they come to work? that 80% of the hands in the room went up. I said, now you understand how difficult it is to change. And you think about all of the changes that have occurred in medicine, not only in the provision of care and the technology and the improved outcomes that we have with our patients, but in the financing, uh, in the business end, um, and just in the last five years since the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, came into being, and we were really required physicians to uh, use computerized electronic medical records. 
it, the the changes you 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 know are, are vast and they are very very fast as well as being vast. And we as human beings don't deal with change management you know change really well. So we've had to focus on how do we get our leadership to explain the context in which we're operating as a you know as a business in in the provision of care and get them to communicate that down to the front lines of so why can't I park in the same spot that I've been parking at for the last 10 years and unless you're good at providing that context you're just you know that frontline employee is going to be at sea as to what why do I have to change my parking spot and I really don't understand so that's probably the biggest challenge we've had in in the last five years and I, I don't see the change slowing down very much. You know, I think back 35 years ago, maybe 40, my dad has a, had his gallbladder out and he was in the hospital for a week and he had a scar that went from one side of his belly to the next and he was out of work for a month. In two years ago, I had a gallbladder attack and I went to the, our emergency room and they used a little handheld ultrasound machine and said, yep, you have gallstones. And the surgeon came in and said, you need to get them out. I said, okay, as long as I'm here. I was in the OR at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was returning work emails from my smartphone in my hospital bed at about 6.30 that night. And I was back to work uh, four days after I had my gallbladder out. But I was doing work for my hospital bed right. to the surgeon that took <laughs> my gallbladder out uh, that night. Yeah. So it's just incredible when you think the technolo technological advances that we've made in medicine. Yeah, that yeah, is amazing. Uh, and yeah, I think we are going to see a lot more change in the very near future. So speaking of change, how do you, as a, as a member of the senior executive team, what's your role? in the organization as, as, excuse me, what's your role on the team? You know, working with Kevin Callahan, your CEO, you said kind of early on HR was, you saw HR as kind of being uh, kind of a professional nudge. Um, do you still see yourself in that role a little bit or is it something else? Um, I, I do. One of... How often do you get to tell Kevin he doesn't have any clothes on too? I kind of want to know about that. He's normally well dressed, actually, um, and you know sometimes he has that chat with me. Yeah, it is because he is an extraordinary thinker and he thinks um, much further ahead than the average CEO that I've worked with, who isn't about meeting the numbers this quarter, but sometimes could get close to that. Kevin is really thinking four or five years down the road. And so sometimes I have a hard time keeping up with where his view of the healthcare system of the future is going to be. But I get to, to sometimes play, you know, asking the stupid HR question between why is, how does this initiative line us up to where we want to be three years down the road? And so it's a tug between the strategic and the tactical, and you know what do you want to do and in what sequence you want to do it. And then we're really good at 
coming up with plans and documents and measures to improve and you know so how do we you know hold ourselves accountable and sometimes you get too focused in on the numbers and you don't take a step back to say well I've achieved this number but what does that really do from a strategic perspective to move the organization further down the road it's a constant tug back and forth because as I said before there, there are many more needs than there are resources available mm -hmm. so as a senior leader you're always trying to figure out what can what do we have to do now and what can wait and uh, we've gotten into some Hoshin planning, which is all around, you know, what are the vital few things that you have to do? And it's much harder to figure out what you need to take a pass on than it is to figure out what you want to do. We're constantly saying there's too many things on the list. I want to just ask you a couple of quick questions about leadership as we've gone fairly long. Um, so a couple of quick questions about leadership. And what would you say is your leadership philosophy? Encapsulate it in a few words. Um, I think, you know, at this point in my career, at, at my level, <clears throat> it really is to empower the people that um, work for me to think creatively towards, you know, those big picture goals that, that we have. And to a certain extent, get out of their way. I have smart people. They want to contribute. And I could probably come up with all of the answers, but it wouldn't be engaging, you know, to them, you know, and it's more fun to ask them questions and, and watch them think through all of the, uh, the permutations and uh, contingencies themselves and help them get a, get a good plan. And, you know, you, as you, you know, get grayer around the temples, you maybe get a little bit wiser and, you know, let, those folks at the front lines kind of have a little bit of fun because they're going to have they're going to be much more invested if they own the work and own the process than if I were to impose it on them. How would you say your leadership style has changed over your career? Well, early on, you're you're much more tactical in smaller organizations in roles that are much closer to the front lines. You need to be tactical as you kind of work your way up the ladder. I think that you can be more strategic and do good work through other people as opposed to you know, doing it yourself. How is that adjustment for you? Because you, you're a leader of leaders now. Yeah. At one point you probably were supervising yourself. I, and, and, so yeah, right. I, I was chief cook and bottle washer <laughs> right, uh, when right. I started out. What was that? What were those steps like? As you first, you were supervising, then you were supervising supervisors. You know, that's a that move from supervising to supervising supervisors is often a difficult it's, transition. It's, it's hard to let go because there are some some trust levels. So you need to make sure that you trust the person that's doing the work. But it's a whole lot easier to take an objective look at someone else's work than it is to take an objective look at your work. So as I've come into organizations where I had additional resources underneath me, it's really kind of fun to you know to take that that role, and you evolve into a you know into a uh, a teacher you know and a mentor much more than a than a doer, which is uh, which is a lot of fun. Can you give an example of a leadership lesson you maybe had to learn the hard way? Well, I talked a little bit before about some of the fit issues you know in cultures when. You know, I was looking to join an, another organization, and 
those fit issues are really tough. I haven't figured out how to make perfect knowledge yet so that I can make great decisions on which teams I wanted to join. Certainly the team I'm on now is, uh, you know, is a great team. So yeah. to some extent, I'd rather be lucky than good. But there are, there are some challenges when you get into a situation that you have misread in terms of what you thought the job was versus, um, you know, what they thought your capabilities were. So it's, it's really f- work hard at, at finding out what the real culture is when you're joining an organization. Wander around, sit in waiting rooms, sit in the cafeteria, and have a critical eye. You know, I mean, sometimes you really want to, you know, get out of where you are, and you would really like to join any other organization. And you know, you have to just take your time a little bit, make sure it's the right fit. You, as a, as the director of HR, vice president of HR, you've you've had some unique opportunities to see where people fail. So. Where have you seen leaders fail, and what what lessons would you take from that? Where I've seen leaders fail is generally not in you know their technical competencies. It's in how they interact with uh, with other people and and other team members. It is you know the ability to influence others and get them to see things that they can't see right now, as opposed to dragging them there, kicking and screaming, that is, there really is the difference. The, the ability to work well with others is you know, really critical in, uh, in the executive suite. There aren't very many executives around anymore that are banging shoes on table and saying, you're going to do it my way or the highway. And that, that's where you know, people historically have uh, have failed. They have got in front of or behind key constituencies, board, medical staff, uh, their their peers, the employees that uh, that they're leading, and you know, there's a big gap, and it, it just doesn't end well. Uh, same question, but focused on kind of early careerists. So you know. Our program here is mm-hmm. we're training young folks, undergraduates in particular, to go into the healthcare administration field. Where do you see young folks coming into the field have their struggles? Maybe not completely fail, but where 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 do you find them getting taken aside and saying, "Hey, you need to be redirected"? Yeah, young people coming into leadership positions are you know placed in very challenging roles because sometimes they're they're leading old people like me who have been parking in the same parking spot for 35 years and you're 23 years old and you're gonna tell me how to do it uh, I don't think so so you know the adoption of some of the you know, the lean philosophy principles about honoring you know the frontline workforce and empowering them and engaging them in process improvement is is probably a key skill because you're not going to get those employees to move from positional authority kind of those days are dead right so, so back to your three hour three credit lesson uh, yeah <laughs> on authority and position oh absolutely authority and influence so I think that would be a good style for them to uh, to adopt. It's, it's much more a questioning style. 
tell me about is probably the two best words that they can they can utter so that they're learning from people and then you know I call it asking the stupid HR question you've had 30 years of experience in healthcare and human resource management how has the field of human resource management changed uh, and specifically how have the changes in healthcare changed and affected the practice of human resource management in the healthcare industry I think that you know the fact that we're much less tactical than we are strategic you know at the senior levels I think there is a much deeper appreciation uh, within executives all throughout the organization about the impact of culture about civility in the workforce and getting the best out of every team you know member that to improve the, the delivery of care at all levels the breaking it down of, of hierarchies is, is really important. So allowing housekeepers to raise their hand when they see something wrong on a nursing floor is is critical. But we, we still have to understand that you know those housekeepers still probably have a view of you know the world and their place in it that is not as important as uh, you know as they think that it is. So it's how do we, you know, treat each other with dignity, you know, and respect, in addition to the fact that it's the right thing to do, but in order to harness the, uh, you know, the experiences of everybody who comes into your workforce, I think we have a much better appreciation, you know, for that now, certainly, than we did, you know, back in the day when you just did what the doctor said. And, you know, as I prepared for this, you know, just thought back 30 years ago to, some of the things that were quite commonplace in, in hospitals that I worked at early on, they just would not fly today, not, not in a New York minute. If you had to pick one book that an early careerist healthcare administrator who's aspiring to be a senior leader should read, what would you recommend, one or, or more than one if you'd like? Well, I, I prepared for this question. I had to think about it a little bit. Actually, there, there are two, and we had talked you know, a little bit earlier uh, about a book that was interesting to me. It's called Into the Storm, a, a Study in Command. It's actually a Tom Clancy book, and he wrote it with uh, General Fred Franks. It's a, it's a great story of growth and development in, uh, in the armed forces and the execution of training right through the development of war planning and, and execution is, is really quite interesting, and I've actually learned a lot from it. The second book is a little bit heavy, but it's A Team of Rivals by uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, I know that one. Uh, uh, just a fascinating view of Lincoln and his management genius in how he worked to preserve the Union and to work with a team of rivals, people that he was running against for the Republican nomination for the presidency, and got him into his cabinet and how he held uh, that group together for, uh, for eight years. Fascinating read. It's awful heavy, though. It's about <laughs> 700 pages. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, well, that's a good a book. One. That's it's a good a, book. It's yeah, a great I one. agree. So let's close on this. Um, again, for my students who are getting ready to head out into the, into the healthcare industry, why should they, get, why should they look at a career in, in Human resource management within the healthcare industry. 
what's particularly rewarding about it? You think? Well, I think that you know if if you're not if you're not focused on a uh, on a clinical career, if you're not if you're not one of the STEM people, and I'm not one of the STEM people, so I I feel slighted sometimes at the at the emphasis on science, technology, engineering, and math because I ain't one of those. Right. Dealing with with people and helping them achieve their potential is is a lot of fun. Doing it in an industry that is you know by its nature helpful and healing brings a joy to the work that you may not get in you know hotel hospitality you know manufacturing um, accounting or fiscal services they may be a little bit more lucrative you know if you catch the right wave but you know but you have to like what you do at the end of the day and there are a whole lot more good days than there are bad days especially at Exeter you know right now Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Chris. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope uh, it's of value to your students. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.